a six-man rotation in Seattle? I'll ask Ray Murphy and an old friend, Jock Thompson, about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February 19th. It's show number six of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday news and notes edition for you. We'll have our Market Watch Player News reports. Harold Nichols covers the National League, and we'll talk about JT Real Muto's hand injury, Adam Duval signing in Miami, Jonathan VR going to the Mets, and more. And Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including James Paxton signing in Seattle in that six-man rotation, rooting around in storage lockers in Tampa, and more. We'll have our HQ Spotlight segment with Jock Thompson. You might remember Jock as our American League beat reporter here back in the day at Baseball HQ Radio, but now he has honest work as an analyst and news director at BaseballHQ.com. Jock and I will also discuss that six-man Seattle rotation, as well as his work at Baseball HQ in playing time today and playing time tomorrow. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon looks at pitchers Sisto Sanchez and Mackenzie Gore. In the Frequent Flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Mets left-handed starting pitcher Thomas Shapucky. And in extra innings, I'll be talking about an objective opinion on Fernando Tatis's new deal. It's another big news and notes edition. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Is Fernando Tatis's new contract bad for the game? We gotta talk some baseball. Well, some guy at ESPN tweeted that Fernando Tatis's new deal in San Diego is, and I quote, objectively bad for baseball. I'll respond at the end of the show in my first extra innings commentary of the season. Right now, though, it's the first inning of this Friday News and Notes edition, our Market Watch Player News reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League report and leading off our National League News and analyst Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here. First news item, this just happened the other night. Uh, pretty bad news for anybody who's already drafted JT Real Muto of the Phillies. He broke his right thumb in spring training. Uh, word I heard was that he was blocking a pitch in the dirt and broke his right thumb. The manager, uh, Joe Girardi, has already told the reporters that the fracture was at the base of Real Muto's right thumb. It's going to be immobilized for two weeks, then the doctors will look at it. They're hopeful, they say, that he'll be in the opening day starting lineup. Phil Hertz covered this for playing time today at Baseball HQ. What is the story here with Real Muto? He's definitely not going to be in spring training games, but they say he should be ready for opening day. What does that mean? Yeah, well, you know, while the early indications are that he will be ready for opening day, we really can't be sure until he's actually back and catching. Um, and even if he meets that target, fantasy managers can anticipate that he'll get more time off early in the season than is usual for him. Uh, and if, in fact, that comes to pass, Andrew Knapp figures to be the main beneficiary. Uh, Knapp has arguably had arguably the best season of his career in 2020, uh, compiled a 263 expected batting average, 98 power index, 
Uh, fantasy managers who roster Nat can anticipate that he may be able to supply that level of power, but they should be aware that his career expected batting average is only 220. So that's that's probably what is is the most likely thing if Romuda was not ready. Uh, we're talking about a guy who's a very seasoned uh, major league catcher and a very uh, a very skilled one, uh, and so it, it may be just some time off early in the season wouldn't hurt him anyway. Uh, and missing spring training may not hurt him anywhere in terms of getting launched. Yeah, a lot of people say spring training's too long. Anyhow, uh, the one thing I thought of when I heard the news is that it would have been worse, I think, if it had been his left thumb because that's the thumb that's in the catcher's mitt. And, of course, then you take all that extra pounding from catching fastballs. And um, anybody who's ever been behind the plate for any length of time knows that no matter how skilled you are, every so often a pitch is going to break that extra inch and catch you on the thumb instead of right in the pocket of the mitt. So uh, that that could be good. On the other hand, if your thumb is broken on your throwing hand, it could affect your ability to fire the ball down to second. So there are all kinds of ancillary problems that could spring up here. Uh, I was looking at Andrew Knapp. You mentioned him. Uh, the other alternative seems to be Jeff Mathis. And if you don't like uh, Knapp's career XBA of 220, you're going to really hate Mathis as he's down around under 200. Right, 199. So, uh, you know, uh, he, he's someone that uh, might, might be able to handle it defensively for a week or two, but you sort of want him in your in your fantasy lineup. And they have a prospect, Raphael Marchand. Any chance that he finds his way to the major leagues ahead of schedule? Well, he went four for eight with Philadelphia in 2020, uh, but those eight at-bats are the only ones he had above high A. So uh, I think they would probably not want him in the majors if they could avoid that situation. Moving along, a free agent outfielder Adam Duval has signed a one-year deal with the Miami Marlins. Phil Hurts again on this story. Where does Adam Duval fit into the outfield situation for the Marlins? Well, Duval had a slow start for Atlanta in 2020 and then hit 11 home runs and 99 at-bats in September. Uh, and that got him back to the power production that he exhibited back in 2016 and 2017. But you've got to remember, Adam Duval, power is his main calling card. Career uh, expected power index of 134. On the other hand, career expected batting average is 243, and contact rate is 70%. Uh, we'll probably hit in the middle of the Marlins order, a man at corner outfield spot. Uh, so uh, he, he'll be in there, I would guess, every day and in the lineup every day and in the middle of the lineup. So uh, could put up some counting numbers. Uh, likely would diminish at bats for a number of Marlins, including Marty Harrison, Lewis Brinson, uh, Magnaria Sierra. Uh, none of those three performed well enough so far in their careers to to fend off near-term competition from Duvall. I guess uh, Duvall being there also suggests we won't see J.J. Blade, the number three prospect uh, this year, much if at all, injuries uh, notwithstanding. Now, you mentioned that uh, Duvall had 11 home runs in September and just 99 at-bats, and the temptation is to prorate that, but that's like a 65 home run pace on a full-time season, and nobody's suggesting that Adam Duval is going to hit 65 home runs in a season. Right, no, and Duval is a very streaky, if you ever had him in a fantasy lineup, you know he's a very streaky player. He can hit those hot streaks and do great things for you for a month, and then there's that week when he goes 0 for 50, and you know, you're, you're in real trouble. So uh, it, it's that kind of situation with Duval. You hit him on the right week, uh, you'll get some good production out of him, but uh, other than that, it's a, it's an iffy kind of proposition as far as I'm concerned. Speaking of the Marlins, uh, Jonathan Villar played for them last year, but he's left as a free agent, signed a one-year deal to join the New York Mets. Uh, we used to think of Villar as a, quite a fantasy asset, but is that still the case? 
Well, you know, over the last five seasons, uh, averaged approximately twenty-seven dollars in standard standard five by five leagues. So, you know, that's pretty good. Uh, and despite that, he'd been non-tendered and traded, and wound up playing for four different teams. Uh, so, you know, it's one of those situations where he's better for us than he is on the field. Um, not known for his glove, he can play all over the field, but really not known for his glove. Career expected batting average of two forty-nine, expected power index of seventy-six. The one thing he does, however, is a uh, a speed of 135, stolen as many as 62 bases in a season. Uh, most are expecting that he will be used as a super utility player. Uh, significant experience at second and at short. Also has played third, center, corner outfield positions. So, you know, there, there's some things that, uh, that he could find his way into the lineup doing. Uh, one possibility is he can push Jeff McNeil to third base and push J.D. Davis to the bench if Davis doesn't hit again. Uh, so, uh, you know, I look at Villar as a, a, as a potentially useful fantasy at, asset for stolen bases. Uh, and, and you can get him probably cheap at the bottom of bottom of your draft at this point. Yeah, I think a lot of uh, is a lot is going to depend on uh, how the Mets decide to use him. Uh, there's a there's a possibility that there's just no playing time available for a guy like VR. I mean, if you look at shortstop, obviously they just paid Francisco Lindor uh, Bill Gates money to play short, so he's not going to get any playing time at short. And then at second, you mentioned McNeil, and McNeil could possibly slide over to third, but then that impacts JD Davis's ability to get on the field. I, I don't know. Uh, it's interesting that VR has had such a positive effect on fantasy teams and such a non-effect everywhere else in real baseball. Uh, it, it is indeed. And maybe it's a matter of, uh, you know, may, he may wind up being a pinch runner. You never know. I mean, that's a, he's got enough speed that uh, would he be worth a bench spot for the Mets just to be able to insert him in a close game uh, when they get somebody on base in the late innings. Herb Washington of the uh, of the 2021 season. I, I don't know. It seems like uh, uh, most of those speedy guys are also somewhat useful as defensive replacements as well. So you put them into pinch run for, you know, the plodding outfielder, and then you leave them out there to play outfield. But VR, as you said, not exactly a Paul Blair with the leather. Right. Uh, no, not known for the glove at all anywhere on the field. So uh, that that may limit that situation. So it seems like a fairly high-risk guy in only leagues. I think he may be worth a flyer towards the end of the draft because you might pick up 15, 20 stolen bases. Uh, last time I checked Baseball HQ's projections, we were saying, you know, it's not going to be that great, 239 batting average, but 14 stolen bases in 340 at-bats, uh, 14 stolen bases could be the difference in the category, I guess. Yeah, it could indeed. I mean, it's one of those things that you could, uh, you could wind up doing considerably better than, uh, than you expect to in that particular category. One of the regular features that's really important at BaseballHQ.com during this preseason period, and all through the year, in fact, is uh, playing time tomorrow. Uh, I'm going to be talking with Jock Thompson in a few seconds. He's a playing time tomorrow analyst. And basically what those guys do is they look at the big picture of all the rosters in a particular division in in Major League Baseball. Uh, Jock does the American League West. And Dan Marcus does the uh, National League Central. And in, in his most recent playing time tomorrow, he looked at the five teams in that division. And one of the stories that caught my eye there was the Cubs, and especially their bullpen. Yeah, you know, as, as the, the, the the Cubs may need to add some bullpen, uh, some bullpen help as they as they head through spring training. Uh, as currently constructed, the uh, Craig Kimbrell will be the team's closer in 2021, and that's likely to remain the case to begin the season. Kimbrell pitched well for the majority of the 2020 season after a really disastrous start, 
but he picked up only two saves and three holds while he surrendered a lot of walks, 17.4%, and a lot of home runs, 1.2 home runs per nine at a very problematic clip. So Rowan Wick racked up four saves in 2020, posted a career high of 123.23 leverage index in 2020, also managed relatively strong indicators, uh, 18.9% strikeout minus walk, uh, five a half point, 0.5 home runs per nine. Uh, and those either rival or surpass those of Kimbrell would be a potential option to pick up if uh, Kimbrell begins to stumble. Any other names that uh, we could look at as potential save sources in Chicago? Andrew Chafin and Kyle Ryan each logged one save with the Cubs in 2020. Uh, Ryan's skills, uh, 7.6 strikeout minus walk percent, 5.11 XERA, indicate that he would fall flat in a closer role or any other high-leverage role, uh, likely leaving him out of reasonable save speculation. Uh, Chafin fared much better, uh, 17.8% strikeout minus walk, 4.2% 4.2x ERA, 1.3h leverage index. And so he would be another worthy uh, speculation uh, early on. Downside in his profile it's had nothing to do with his skill, but uh, the Cubs may prefer to have him as, as a shutdown lefty rather than reserving for the ninth inning. And they've also uh, could add some veterans. Jeremy Jefferson's still out there. David Robertson's still out there. So there could be some opportunity yet to come. There could indeed. Uh, there's still some, some free agents who could fulfill a meaningful role in that bullpen. Uh, and uh, they get cheaper, of course, as the day goes by. In Facts and Flukes, our Baseball HQ analysts take a look at five guys within one of the leagues and talk about their previous performance and whether it's valid and whether there's upside, downside, no side, inside, outside. And one of the guys in Brant Chasser's Facts and Flukes column this week is uh, Austin Nola, the catcher in San Diego, who had a pretty good year last year. He did indeed. I uh, had a very strong 2020 season. 2019, he had 269 with 10 homers, 31 RBIs. 37 runs and 238 at bats. In 2020, 273, seven home runs, 28 RBIs, 24 runs, and only 161 at bats. Uh, so the question is, did, did were those improvements something that we want to uh, to put some money on? Uh, and even though he was kind of slow in September, skills supported the 2020 growth. Uh, jumps in expected power index, uh, in barrel index, in hard contact rate, uh, his expected home runs as his power was a fact. Uh, 39% career fly ball rate, 14% home run per fly for his career. He should set a career high in home runs in 2021, a chance of 20 homers coming out of that catcher position. He backed up his uh, 0.53i with an average walk rate, above average contact rate, uh, adding uh, hard contact support, supporting the favorable uh, uh, expected batting average. So even if his contact rate slips a bit with uh, 70 for 6, 70 six percent career contact rate skill support and above average batting average in 2021 so uh you know i think this guy could look pretty good in terms of uh, the coming season the skill seems to support what he did last year it does and uh he, he was one of those guys who seems to have benefited from a more regular dose of playing time and this year we have him down for 65 percent of the catching in san diego victor caratini being the backup with about a third there so austin nola there's a lot to like here and not not a lot to dislike frankly yeah i think you're right i mean i don't see a lot of downside for austin nola uh and uh, as you said certainly a lot to like so 
Uh, somebody I think to keep your eye on in the draft if you're looking for uh, for a second catcher, certainly. But even as, as your number one catcher, he would be fine. And finally, Nick, uh, one of the things that Baseball HQ looks at is the market, the, the uh, fantasy baseball marketplace, because what we think of a player's value is only part of the equation as far as how much we're willing to risk on acquiring that player. And uh, oftentimes the price is not justified because the rest of the market thinks much higher of a player, or if you're lucky, thinks much lower of a player so you can get them on the cheap there's uh, usually that gets covered at Baseball HQ in our uh, in the fantasy market watch segments and and uh, that's a good place for them. I mean that's the whole point of having them. But that kind of information also comes out in other columns. And I'm thinking of the speculator uh, Ryan Bloomfield. We talked about this earlier uh, last week, and uh, he had this column called uh, "Avoiding This Year's Kettle Marte." And one of the names that popped up as a high ADP guy to approach with caution was Trent Grisham, another San Diego player in the outfield. Yeah, Trent Grisham is getting momentum in early drafts, a 68 ADP. Uh, and and, they, and you, you look at the numbers, you can see why. Coming off a double-digit home run stolen base sprint in 2020, uh, entering his age 24 season, likely going to hit leadoff uh, atop that potent uh, San Diego lineup. But if you look at last year's breakout, only 215 at-bats. Our minor league team tagged him with a 7C prospect uh, rating back in 2019. Uh, pretty significant batting average downside. 241 uh, career expected batting average. Uh, didn't show the raw power skill. Uh, 111 expected power index to support last year's 20% home run per fly rate. Uh, and it looks like he could be a candidate to be more negatively impacted by the dead and ball if that really happens. So, uh, our, our conclusion was that he left 2020 the same as he entered it as an intriguing power speed flyer, but not someone who would be number 68 uh, ADP. Yeah, those are the kind of plays you think you'd be looking at later in the draft for sure. And the, the thing that worries me that you mentioned is that batting average downside is really frightening. It is indeed. Very frightening, especially when you're dealing with, uh, with, with uh, an outfielder and uh, where you can get much better uh, batting average than than you would uh, expect. And one of the markers that Ryan Bloomfield used in this uh, column about avoiding Kettle Marte is, generally speaking, you need to be a little more suspicious of guys who don't have a prospect pedigree. I mean, it happens. There are guys who are on, uh, disregarded as prospects who come up and become great players, but typically they're, the Major League Baseball establishment, the institution, is pretty good at figuring out which prospects have promise and which ones don't. And uh, when he was a prospect, BaseballHQ.com had him rated as 7C, which is a guy whose ceiling is, you know, a pretty good regular player, but certainly not a star in, in any sense of the word. So the idea that he's going to become a star after the fact is, as I said, not impossible. It's just something you have to really be cautious about betting on. Right, absolutely, especially with uh, a limited major league track record at this point uh, in a very strange season. Now, another source of these kind of market considerations is playing time tomorrow. We already talked about the uh, Dan Marcus story about the Chicago bullpen, but Alan DeLeonardis covers the National League East, and he took a look at another guy who seems to be overdrafted, Alec Bohm. Yeah, you know, Alec Bohm, Alec Bohm is a good prospect. He hit the ground running in 2020. Uh, batting line in his first taste of the majors was 338, 400, 481. 24 runs, four homers, 23 RBIs, one stolen base. 
all of that in only 160 at bats. Those numbers were not supported by his skills, though. Uh, a 42% hit rate injected uh, all the fat necessary to smooth out the wrinkles. Uh, the wrinkles are an 87% uh, 87 hard contact index, 259 expected batting average, 53% ground bait, uh, 73 expected power index. Uh, his his 90.2 miles per hour exit velocity was above average, uh, 81st out of 351, 77th percentile. But you take out the ground balls, that exit velocity is much less impressive, uh, more 59th percentile, uh, 93.6 miles per hour. So we're not saying that he's not an exciting young player. He has the pedigree. His minor league numbers were impressive, 293, 368, 474. Uh, but don't, don't believe that those 2020 numbers are real at this point when you're thinking about taking him in a draft or how much to bid in an auction. Uh, he, uh, keeper league? Probably has a good future. It might be worth tucking away. But he could disappoint in 2020 if he repeats the skills he showed us last season. Well, we're giving him pretty much full-time playing time, 85% of the at-bats in combining between third base and first base for Alec Bohm. So, you know, he's going to get his swings. The, the, the question is, what what is he going to do with them? And again... I'd love to have Alec Bohm on a lot of my rosters as long as it didn't cost me a high draft pick or a lot of money at the auction. And I suspect somebody in most of my drafts is going to invest uh, more money than I'm willing to and is going to take a higher draft pick than I'm willing to spend on really what is still a, an unproven commodity. There's always an appeal, isn't there, Nick, for these young guys and because you want to be the guy who is smart enough to draft the Alec Bohm who explodes and has 33 home runs or something like that and hits 290. But the fact is, there's very little in his track record to suggest that that's likely. That's right. And in general, young guys I find in the drafts go far higher than they should uh, just because you want to be uh, have on your roster the next, uh, the next great star that no one else has thought of. And, of course, this is a couple of old guys talking about young guys, so you can take that with a grain of salt as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, Nick. Well, thanks very much for helping us out this week. Uh, do appreciate it, and we'll catch up with you again in seven days. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League and a Baseball HQ columnist and co-general manager who covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. It's Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the show. Happy Friday, PD. Yeah, thank you. Uh, long, uh, a long week. Well, actually, a short week up here in Canada. We had a statutory holiday on Monday. I think you guys did, too. We did. We had uh, President's Day on Monday. What is your holiday? It's called Family Day. It's uh, something they invented uh, a long time ago just to give a long weekend sometime in the, the, the long, cold winter. And the weird thing is we have two holidays that they invented more or less, I think, at around the same time. One a long weekend in August, one a long weekend in February. You're in the living in the northeast of the U.S., so February is probably not the most convivial month for picnics and outdoor gatherings. It certainly isn't in Canada, I can tell you that. It's like generally minus degrees below freezing in Celsius. And, and so they had a choice, and they named the February one Family Day, and the August one is called Simcoe Day or something, as some old general that... Uh, won a battle in the War of 1812 or something. And I think to myself, in Canada, if you had a choice, wouldn't you make the August one family day? 
and <laughs> <laughs> like it's in February and stay inside and don't kill your family day. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh man, I'm telling you, it just uh, it boggles your mind sometimes how. Uh, People just don't seem to think about this kind of stuff, and probably rightly so. They probably think the same of us, thinking as much as we do about fantasy baseball and that kind of stuff. And uh, let's start with a bit of news, Ray. uh, Free agent left-hander James Paxton, uh, late of the Yankees, signed with his old team in Seattle. A one-year deal. Um, Rod Truesdell of BaseballHQ.com covered the story for our Playing Time Today news coverage. How does signing with a pretty uncompetitive Seattle team affect Paxton's fantasy value? Well, his value isn't terribly team-dependent in my mind. He, until last year, fell into that group of pitchers that were either good or broken, which was a pretty, you know, in some ways, a pretty low-risk group because you knew at least that they weren't going to destroy you. If they were healthy, they would pitch and pitch well, and if they weren't healthy, you'd go get somebody else. Uh, Paxton broke that mold last year by pitching badly. Now it was a very short sample. He threw, I think it was 20 innings with a disastrous six-something ERA, and you could argue that you know he actually wasn't healthy when he was pitching like that because a healthy James Paxton doesn't get lit up that way. But, you know, if we're in this mental state of giving out 2020 mulligans and you know sort of you know ignoring recency bias and taking the longer term view maybe we should think of Paxton in that earlier mindset of if he's healthy he might be good and you know it's probably one of those things where we will get a pretty good read on him in March because the reports from his little scouting showcase were pretty good as far as how he was throwing with, uh, you know, where, where his velocity was and where people projected it could get to with a month of spring training. So, you know, he was pretty clearly two and a half, three miles per hour down on the radar gun last year when he was actually pitching. So if we see the radar gun bouncing back more toward his 95-ish career average than the, the 92 we saw last year, then I would I would imagine that he's going to see a lot of uh, helium on his ADP come uh, mid-March or so. The Mariners have publicly announced, Ray, they're going to stick with that six-man rotation that they debuted last season. That announcement, we have to say, came before they signed Paxton. First, do you think having signed Paxton changes their thinking? And second, if he is just one of those guys going every six days, he'll obviously get fewer starts. Are there any positive sides to the value potential of uh, of increased rest for a guy who's injury prone as James Paxton? You know, it's fascinating, PD. We've gone around this question, you and I, for, for years now in different rotation configurations and what it means for starting pitcher value. I, I still think the, you know, I'll preface everything I'm about to say with, you know, the biggest question with Paxton is, how much, how healthy he is, and able to provide, and able to carry a load every fifth day or every sixth day. And if he is, how often he's getting a turn doesn't matter that much to me. Six days may even keep him a little healthier. Uh, but you know, for a six-man rotation on a fixed-size pitching staff, what does that mean? Does it you know everyone thinks in the there's a lot of talk in the industry right now that the six-man rotation is going to lead to fewer innings for starters, fewer starts, fewer wins, more value keeping getting pushed toward the relievers, etc. But does it mean in a case like Paxton that if he's only pitching every sixth day and he's healthy, that they let him go a little deeper into the game and maybe 
getting fewer starts mean you know is offset by the fact that they'll let him try to reach the sixth inning more and maybe pick up hang around long enough for a couple of wins that way you know a six-man rotation can mean a lot of different things it can mean five starters in a bullpen day it can mean piggyback starts it can you know not a lot of teams actually have six starters they like if you're you know unless you're a Dodgers fan so you know, I, I, what it actually means in Seattle's case and in everyone else's case remains to be seen, but I'm not so sure the universal conclusion that it's bad for starting pitching value is going to be universally true. I agree with you entirely. A lot, so much of it is going to depend on what actually they mean by a six-man rotation. And we've heard other teams talking about it. Detroit has talked about it. Up in Boston, I've heard that they are they didn't exactly talk about six man rotations per se but they talked about workload management and this kind of thing and to me the the bottom line is if you if they adopt a six man rotation because it's snazzy or because it makes headlines and they can get people talking about it and selling some tickets or raising tv ratings that's one thing but if they're actually approaching it with some kind of systematic organized thinking it might actually help, and and in in a lot of ways that you've just described, maybe they're getting fewer starts, but more innings in the start, which is beneficial. Maybe they're get, getting work more uh, extra work that helps them amass counting stats in general. Who the heck knows? If it amounts to in any way more intelligent management of how pitchers are on the field, I'm for it, and I think it helps fantasy too. Hundred percent, and you, you, like you said, you, know, you you hit on a, a great point in there. You know, a six day, you know, a, a six man rotation could lead to pitchers throwing more of a side session on the you know on the middle day, or maybe even coming out of the bullpen on the third day if they need to get an inning or two in or pick up the staff or something like that. So maybe there's a, a little value regained there. And the other thing about it is, you know, this is another one of those things that sounds interesting on paper here in late February, early March, but what happens when the rubber hits the road? Because I can tell you that teams that are not swimming and starting pitching depth who decide to go with a six-man rotation for workload management, well, what happens when one of the six gets hurt, which inevitably is going to happen on like April 10th? And now they're just going to say, oh, well, we still have five starters. We're fine. We'll just go back to a five-man rotation. And then when the guy who got hurt comes back, you know, they could be six guys rotating through, six or more guys just rotating through five rotation slots throughout the course of the year because they can never actually get six of them on the roster at the same time because one of them has always got a, a hangnail or a bone spur or what have you. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, really the Dodgers, you could argue, have been doing six-man rotation for a while with this, putting guys on and off that 10-day DL when we had that for a while, and it seemed to work for them, relatively speaking. They were using it as a workload management tool, and they were making no bones about it, even though it was kind of violating the spirit of the law. Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, I'm reminded of, um, you know, since we are talking about the Mariners with Paxton, I was, I'm reminded of what they tried to do with, uh, I think it was Kikuchi two years ago in his first year, where they wanted to workload manage him as he transitioned to the U.S. for the first time and, you know, went from the, um, you know, I think they used a six-man rotation pretty consistently in Japan. So they were trying to manage that. And what they did was they said that, like, every fourth or fifth starter, I forget what it was, like, he was going to start and just go one inning. 
And like you said, essentially it's going to be like an opener that night. And that was going to be like one way that like four or five times, six times throughout the year, like once a month, he was essentially going to get like a, you know, a nine day break where he only threw one inning. I mean, you know, that all that kind of stuff comes into play too. If you get a, a, a six, if you get six guys, you know, rotating too. You know, somebody you can play opener games. You can do piggyback starts. You can, you know, rotate the piggyback. You can have one guy who's the sort of second guy in, and he, you know, essentially gives every every one of the five quote unquote primary starters a short start every, you know, every once every five times. I mean, there were, you know, you can sit down with a piece of paper and draw all kinds of really funny diagrams. But you know, it gets back to what is management trying to do and what do they, what do they know about the way their pitchers recover and the right way to try to spread out that workload? You mentioned something interesting a moment ago, Ray, which is the idea that why can't a pitcher who's going to throw a side session sometime between starts, why can't he throw it while he's standing on an actual mound in an actual game? I've never been able to figure out why they don't do that, except uh, I asked Rob Dibble once. I was on uh, Sirius XM and Rob Dibble was on there and I said, "What you know? couldn't you have seen a, a situation where one of the starters halfway through his four days of rest uh, came out and threw an inning in relief because he's a better pitcher than, you know, your seventh bullpen guy or whatever. And he said no, and the reason was we've never done it that way, basically, was his argument. And uh, in baseball, that's often the argument. But uh, he did make one point about not doing that, and, and that is that uh, there is a schedule. There is a uh, you get your body gets used to a certain way of doing things, and you'd have to ramp into it pretty slowly. But I think, given enough lead time, there's no reason that they couldn't do that. And as you said, if if they were going five days between instead of four, then on that third day, if they were doing a side session, they they could ramp it up and maybe throw an inning or two in relief during a game, which would be a huge help for their fantasy counting. Stats. Yeah, totally, and it, it, like you said, it offsets the fact that the fourth or f- you know the, the uh, you know if, if starts are generally getting cut short and average pitch counts and a start is averaging down, then you know it's a way that you know obviously you're not likely to get get a decision in your one inning appearance on your quote unquote throw day. But you know in terms of aggregate counting stats, it, it, it's a way to get these pitchers back from you know, the 150, 160 inning limit back up to that seems to be getting set back up toward the 175, 180 that we, you know, value in a full season of a starting pitcher. Yeah. You know what it all comes down to, and it's sort of echoed in uh, fantasy leagues, especially that have daily moves is that what you're trying to do is get your best performers on the field as often as possible. And in, in other sports, they just do this as a matter of course. Uh, I'm thinking of hockey where, you know, if you've got a Sidney Crosby on your team or a Bobby Orr back in the day, you know, you, you try to get him out there. He gets all the power play ice. He gets all the penalty killing ice. He, he gets, uh, maybe he centers the first line and the fourth line, you know, anything you can do to get a star player out there, a top performer out there more often seems to be a no brainer. And yet baseball for a long time has insisted that that fifth day in the rotation be the fifth best pitcher you have, or maybe even worse. Yeah. And you know, it's funny, you know, thinking on your conversation with Dibble and then, you know, what's changed in the last few years with openers, you know, one thing you could certainly imagine with these starters is if you want them to throw an inning uh, on a throw day, 
then, you know, so much of that depends on the flow of the game and can you get them in and how's the starter for that night doing and the start and this guy who's got his throw day has got to decide, am I going to throw my, you know, 25 pitches at 530 in the afternoon before the game or am I going to order that they, do they want to wait and keep me but I got to get my work in regardless so you know, if it's eight to one in the seventh inning, do I just get up and throw my inning in the bullpen there? You know, I, I can understand you know, Dibble's point about the uncertainty of that and how that would drive a starting pitcher kind of crazy. On the flip side of it, though, now that we have an opener, the concept of the opener, if Paxton, for instance, is scheduled to throw 25 pitches on his throw day, why not just let him start the game? Give him the five pitches at 25 pitches at seven o'clock in the, in the first inning rather than at five 30, you would think that's a routine he's used to. And if he knows he's going going out there to throw one inning or 25 pitches and the regular starter starts the second inning, that seems less disruptive than sitting in the bullpen for three hours, wondering when you're going to get your call. Well, it's certainly a, an area that's going to be fascinating to watch over the next couple of years because as we get newer, younger, fresher ideas in front offices and in field management, I think we're going to start seeing things like this where teams say, you know, we have a 100-level pitcher and we have a 60-level pitcher. Let's try to get that 100-level pitcher out there more often than the 60-level pitcher. It just seems to make sense. And, you know, Ray, when we look for teams that are trying new ideas in pitching we almost always end up talking about Tampa and this year it looks like their zag to everyone else's zig uh, seems to be like those reality shows where people look for treasures in flea markets and storage lockers and what have you because this season the Rays have a lot of reclamation projects in their potential rotation at least Rich Hill, Michael Waka and even former Ray Chris Archer's back in Tampa what are the fantasy ramifications of this effort do you think? You know, it's funny. I have a mental image of what the Rays are doing here. Like you said, in mine goes to the, um, I don't know if you guys have this up north, but the uh, there's, a, there's a reality show on one of the uh, cable channels called Storage Wars, where guys auction bid on abandoned storage units without knowing anything about what's inside them. And sometimes they get crap out of it. And sometimes they get actual, you know, stuff of value that got abandoned. This kind of reminded me of what the Rays are doing. They're just like, you know, buying like unopened storage lockers of guys like Chris Archer and Rich Hill and Michael Waka and Colin McHugh. And they're going to, you know, they're going to open them all up and see if they can cobble together to the back end of a starting rotation out of it. Or like we were just talking about a minute ago, these guys sort of look to me like they're all ideally suited to be three inning pitchers or piggyback starters or something like that. So maybe they go with, you know, quote unquote, regular starts when your glass now and Yarborough are pitching. But on the other three days, they, you know, one day you get Archer for three and then Waka for three. And then another day you get, you know, Rich Hill for three and Louis Patino for three or something like that. I, you know, the, the, as you say, the Rays are creative and it, I, I can't discern exactly what they're doing here, but I guarantee you it's going to be something we talk about. By the way, we do have storage wars up here in Canada. There was actually a, even a Canadian version, and uh, you know, every week, oh, another collection of commemorative hockey pucks. Uh, how, much, <laughs> <laughs> how much could this be worth? You mentioned Colin McHugh in particular. Our BHQ depth charts show he's going to be eighth or so on the list of starters. Spot start here and there, probably more in the bullpen. What should our expectations be with McHugh in particular? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, he, he's one who was injured in the spring last year before the shutdown and then you know was initially thought he would be ready to go come 
the summer, but then he had a uh, he had a setback and then just opted out and basically said, like, I'm just going to take another six or eight months and you know try to get my elbow right. It remains to be seen if his arm is actually right. But, you know, it ends up being a you know interesting profile. Like you said, we've got him projected essentially as a swing man with, you know, 2% of the starting pitching innings, which, you know, doesn't amount to much. Another 4% out of the bullpen, which comes out to, you know, 87 innings or so. So if you imagine a you know, I'm thinking of him as sort of the right-handed role of what Jalen Beeks was playing for them in the last year or two, where, you know, every fourth or fifth day he's coming out and, you know, sometimes depending on the opposition, sometimes he starts and goes to winning. Sometimes he comes in in the third, one a couple, you know, depending on the condition of the rest of the bullpen, sometimes he might go two winning. Sometimes he might go four, you know, it, and it, the thing we always talk about with these guys is, I don't know if the Rays will be this consistent, but if there's a pattern to who the second man in is, that gets very interesting because that's a target-rich environment for wins. You know, the openers are the f- guy pitching the first three innings. It's really tough to derive value out of them, but the the guy who pitches the second three innings is a completely different story. It is, uh, and when I was looking at Colin McHugh's record, I, I what I see is a guy who's not that effective and hasn't been that effective as a starter. I think uh, back in 2014, he had a pretty good year starting uh, around a one whip, uh, jumps out at me. But other than that, it's been pretty pedestrian at best. And then uh, that one year in 2018 with Houston as a reliever, 199 ERA, 091 whip, it was get, piling up strikeouts even in limited innings, but he was pitching more than one inning per appearance. And if he gets into that kind of uh, usage pattern, if maybe that's something that the Rays have identified, all of a sudden here's a hidden source of value in round 22 or whatever, or maybe even in the reserve rounds or in a 50-man sort of draft and hold. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it, what the Rays – what to the extent I can discern what the Rays are doing, this looks like, you know, they're getting even further down the road of blurring the lines between starters and relievers and everyone are just pitchers. Right. Um, and you know, like you said, they're very creative and they're very good at this. And the other piece of the puzzle that we haven't spoken of yet is that it's a copycat league. So whatever they do, you can be sure that by the, if it's going well by the second half or by next season, there'll be 10 teams doing what they're doing. Exactly, and it's always the execution rather than the theory that matters. And sometimes the Rays are good at things and other teams pick it up and they're not good at it because they're not doing it correctly or they don't have the right personnel or they haven't matched everything together the way it needs to be. You know, it it, it reminds me of when you said uh, a pitcher's just a pitcher, kind of they're moving towards that philosophy. Is uh, I follow the NBA a little bit and uh, a, a growing sort of, view of how the NBA works is there's no such thing as a point guards and and you know shooting forwards and stuff what they all are is just players and sometimes you know the better players like LeBron sometimes he's the point guard sometimes he's the power forward sometimes he'll post up and play center what they're trying to do is figure out a way to get the best combination of guys out there doing the best combination of things and let's just take those position labels and throw them aside much like we do in in infield positioning now in baseball is a second baseman really a second baseman yeah exactly we've kind of done that on the defensive end of the spectrum but we haven't done it as much with pitching pitching yet but that seems to be the direction things are going you know i'm reminded of uh you know having grown up in uh in New York and being a basketball fan down there when I was younger, uh, you know, the, the, the Knicks invented a position called point forward at one point, which is like the, you know, what LeBron has eventually become, et cetera. Like, you know, that concept's been around the NBA forever now. And like you said, there are just, you know, 
shooters and wings and, you know, point guards and centers don't really exist the way they did when, uh, you know, Bob Cousy was dribbling the ball with the four, right? <laughs> yeah, you have some memory there. Uh, uh, Ryan Bloomfield handles a regular column at BaseballHQ.com that you're probably familiar with because it used to be your bailiwick. The speculator column is about the 20% play as opposed to the 80% play that Baseball HQ usually focuses on. And this week, Ryan wrote about avoiding next the next Kettle Marte. And in fact, Ryan points out that Marte himself was on last year's avoid list in the speculator column. So the idea has some small sample validity. But before we talk about specific players, how did Ryan build this list of potential Kettle Marte disappointments? So, yeah, this is a fun thing that Ryan does that um, you know, he's, he's borrowed or continued from uh, my days with the speculator. It's really just the idea to take one breakout profile or you know one disappointment profile from last year sort of apply some filters to it or you know go look look backward through the lens and say how could we have seen this coming either good or bad and come up with some criteria apply the criteria to this year's projections and sort of see what burps out of the engine so in in uh in this case with Marte, what ryan isolated is that Kettle had a lack of a track record. He earned $33 in 2019 in his breakout, but it was never more than, I think, 12 bucks previously. Uh, he wasn't a top-rated prospect. He was uh, you know, rated a 7B on our prospect scale, which gave him a 70% chance of being an average regular, but that 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 average regular tag you know, was not supposed to intersect with you know $33 value. Um, also, that you know, Marte's breakout was not fully skill supported. You know, one of the things we saw there was he picked up a ton of playing time that year and, you know, really banged out the counting stats, but, you know, it was not uh, a fully skill supported breakout. And despite all of the above, the market fully bought into him in 20, in 2020, uh, you know, coming off that breakout 2019, his ADP was around 39 or 40, I think, which is a, you know, a third rounder. So you were essentially paying full price for, a repeat of something he had only done once. So that was sort of the the profile that uh, Ryan came up with to say who might be this year's Kettle Marte. So who does Ryan Bloomfield say could be among this year's Kettle Martes? You know, the first one that jumped out is Randy Arazarena, who, you know, checks a lot of those sort of Marte boxes from the, uh, you know, from the profile that Ryan built. We are right down to his prospect rating being the same that Marte had. He was a, came through as a 7B prospect, which again denotes average regular upside, not the, uh, not the behemoth he was in the uh, late stages of 2020 and certainly the postseason. Uh, and, you know, when we talk about 2020, everything about 2020 involves small samples. So as good as, Arazarena's power speed blend looked in 2020. There was just far afield of anything he had shown us in the minors previously. And the sample for that, you know, 185 plate appearances, uh, including the postseason where he continued to stay hot, is still just a, you know, a drop in the bucket as far as sample size. And we haven't seen the six-month cat and mouse game of pitchers around the league adjusting to him the second and third time they see him and him having to counter-adjust. There are a lot of unanswered questions there. Uh, kind of like we talked about with Luis Robert last week. And the market is pricing him in something like the fourth round right now, which is similar to Marte means that they're, you know, the, the, the market is essentially pricing him that he's got to give you a full repeat to even approach what his cost or leave you any room for profit at all. So in a, in a draft pick range where you're really just 
kind of have to be right. There's you know more than a couple of lingering questions about whether Arena can return that kind of value for us. Ray, I've been more interested in Vladimir Guerrero Jr. this season because he came to camp looking less like he was on the Pillsbury Doughboy fitness regimen and more like a professional athlete. But Ryan says Vladimir Guerrero is still a potential Marte for this season. He certainly doesn't fail the top prospect test. He was, a, I think, the top prospect in all of baseball in the year he came up, and he hasn't had the breakout like Marte had. But he's still climbing the ADPs in a way that Ryan finds problematic. Yeah, I very much agree with Ryan on this. You know, Vlad gets all the love in the hype, you know, with the hype machine, right? And, you know, a lot of people I respect in the industry are very much in on him. And, you know, that's not to say I diminished the prospect status or anything. It was, I mean, it was the last time I was in first pitch Arizona because we didn't have it in 20 and I missed it in 19. Uh, But back in 2018, when we saw Vlad out there, you know, he was you know, the greatest thing since sliced bread. And, you know, even in drafts that year and that winter, you know, he was being drafted before even playing a big league game, just, you know, super high, like, you know, fifth, sixth round kind of stuff. And since then, I don't want to say he's done nothing in the majors, but he's done nothing but disappoint relative to the hype. And yet his ADP keeps going higher. I, you know, I'm very much in, uh, uh, you know, as, as we say in the forecaster, uh, you, you know, that, we're not, we don't want to pay for a level of performance that a guy hasn't achieved yet. And sure, I see all the things in Guerrero's profile that make him a breakout candidate. And there's a price point at which I'd like to speculate on that. But that price point is well below where he's going right now. I'm just going to sit back and, you know, if he goes nuts and he beats me this year, so be it. But I'm going to use my you know fourth rounder on something else. The devil's advocate says, yeah, there's all those things are true. But man, he just hits the hell out of the ball. Oh, I mean, he does, no doubt. You know, he hits the ball hard. You know, he's an exit velocity darling, but he's, you know, the opposite of a launch angle darling. He hits the ball hard consistently on the ground. And sure, that, you know, we talk about pitchers who are, you know, one skill away all the time. And maybe he's just a hitter who's one skill away and a launch angle tweak. And, you know, we're getting his mechanics in a different place or getting, the bat to the ball at a slightly different launch angle is going to be what unlocks the, you know, the Vlad God that everyone's been waiting for. But, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to make him show me. One of the big deals this offseason, Ray, has been how fantasy leagues are handling position eligibility. And I know, I think you've got a GM's office coming up about how Baseball HQ is dealing with that particular issue. Yeah, so we've been you know, scrambling to get all of, all of our technical work done to support draft season here. Uh, position eligibility was a was number one on the wish list because you know we've been sort of hard coded on the side to support twenty game position eligibility from the prior year for I mean as, as I've been involved with the site and twenty game position eligibility obviously does not work coming out of 2020 and more to the point, you know, we could have just gone in and globally changed 20 games to 10 or whatever and been done with it. But what what I quickly got the sense of earlier this winter was that there wasn't going to be a single standard. You know, we saw leagues going to five, we saw leagues going to 10, the NFBC did the straight math on 60 divided by 162 and settled on seven games for eligibility. So, you know, we, we, we had to make some enhancements to our tools to be able to support 
different positional eligibility requirements in your leagues. And we finished that work last week. You know, we now have support for five, seven, or 10 game eligibility based on last season. So that's uh, that's available in the stats and projections files. It's available in the custom draft guide. And, uh, you know, a super cool enhancement that something we've actually wanted to do for a long time to get away from, you know, hard coding that 20 game standard. But uh, the pandemic sort of expedited it for us. So uh, that's one thing we're happy to have available now. And finally, Ray, another thing at the site, Baseball HQ has announced a pretty significant change in presentation of data. We're moving a lot of the stats from a per nine innings basis to outcomes percentages. So strikeouts, for instance, used to be strikeouts per nine innings. They're now going to be calibrated and presented as strikeout percentages of batters faced. Uh, Eric Floramonte wrote about this in a research report the other day at Baseball HQ. First of all, why this change? You know, this goes back to, you know, you did some of the earliest work on this PD with our, on our site where you did a whole series in master notes and research about positive rate outcomes and how it's not only is it more accurate to measure walks and strikeouts as percentages of batters faced rather than uh, per nine, nine inning denominators. But then the other thing about that is that it unlocks combinatorics that you can get out of that. You can start combining ground ball rate with strikeout rate and pop-up rate or what have you in because you've now standardized the denominators which is uh you know really cool as far as what it can do to you know to unlock further analysis which is you know which is one of the things that got us thinking about making this change a couple of years ago and really the rest of the industry is you know sort of already there we might have even been a little bit behind on this but you know to be honest with you, one thing about it is we were afraid of it just because it is really disorienting for a little while when you make the change. So it's funny. We made the change in the baseball forecaster this past fall, and you know, that's gone out, gone pretty well. People adapted to it. Um, but I, you know, I've, I've gotten a fu- couple of funny emails about it. You know, I got one you know, that I thought summed it up really well where a guy wrote it and said, you know, I, I so look forward to getting the forecaster every year. I opened up the picture boxes and it was like you sent me the foreign language version. <laughs> which that was just like a great like a great way of putting it because it is kind of disorienting but everybody who wrote in i'd steered them to this article that Eric wrote for the forecaster explaining why we not just why we made the change but also he sort of provided the quote-unquote rebaselining helping everyone with you know why this isn't so different what the new thresholds are, what's bad, what's average, what's good. And we put that article up on the website this week because we just rolled the same change onto HQ. Uh, in PlayerLink now, there's a button, a toggle button up at the top where you can uh, of the PlayerLink page where you can toggle between the sort of old format and the new format here. And in the, uh, in the stats and projections files, we have both. So it's a little easier on the website than the book because we're not space constrained. So in the book, we had to drop the old metrics, but in the, uh, in the website, we found a couple of ways to keep them around and keep them next to each other so that you can, you know, what we, what we expect everyone to do, you know, throughout this year on us, honestly, because it takes a while is to sit there and say, all right, look, you struck out 23% of batters. Is that good? Let me toggle back to, back to, K per nine. Oh, that was like, that, that's a strikeout in Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I got it. That's good. So, uh, you know, that's all in place now and we are, uh, happy to have sort of, uh, gone where the rest of the world has gone with that already. They're just flat out better metrics and they will help us going forward once we get over sort of the transition bumps here. Have you looked into how repeatable or how consistent they are from season to season? Is there any difference between a, you know, a 10 strikeout per nine guy and a 25% strikeout guy as far as how last year predicts this year? 
Yeah, you know, it's actually a lot, a lot less noisy, which is the biggest reason we made the change. Because you know, we, there are a couple of examples in the uh, the article article that Eric put together where no, what what it really comes down to is noise in hit rate and strand rate can obscure your uh, the the prenon denominators because if you give up a lot of hits, you know, you have like a forty percent hit rate BABIP, you're facing that many more batters because they got on base. And every additional batter you face is essentially an opportunity for a strikeout. So if you give up three hits and then strike one guy out, you know, you struck out one batter out of every four, right? But, but if you got two ground balls and one strikeout, you struck out one batter out of every three. And you know that that's where the noise ends up coming into it. And you know, doing everything on the basis of batters faced rather than outs or innings is the uh, you know is the uh, the less noisy metric. Well, as you said, I've always been a real proponent of looking at outcomes on a per batter or a, if you're a, if you are a batter, a plate appearance basis, and if you're a pitcher on a batter's face basis, which I believe they're exactly the same thing, uh, because. As you said, a common denominator across the measures allows you to sum things up and you can say, well, a a positive outcome for a pitcher is a strikeout, a pop-up, soft contact, you know, uh, you can scale that kind of thing and then say negative is this, positive is this, we'll subtract one from the other and the best pitchers are probably going to be the most positive and it turns out that's actually pretty accurate and it is pretty repeatable. So I think it's a good step forward for the site and I imagine, of course, there are going to be um, problems or, or issues with pe- readers reorienting their minds, recalibrating the stat, but I bet you it's not even a full year before everybody gets, oh yeah, this is just better. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And we'll let people sort of climb the mountain on their own, at their, at their own pace because we've got the old and the new right next to each other, like I said. But I wouldn't be surprised if sometime next offseason we just ditch all the per nine stuff because everyone's made the transition and it doesn't matter anymore. But we'll see how that goes. Plus, it helps to align with a lot of other baseball analysis, not necessarily just fantasy baseball analysis, but as you said, strikeout percentage, walk percentage, these have become industry norms. And and you don't want to be the last guy getting on the industry norm because everybody's looking at strikeout percentages, then they get to your site and they have to kind of make that conversion in their mind or, or look it up separately or something. And it just helps to, to even out the research that people want to do. We want Baseball HQ to be a part of that research, of course, but we know it's not the only research that a lot of our readers, listeners, and subscribers do. That's exactly right. And when you think about it, the per nine stats were really, you know, they they were the standard for as long as they were only because that was the only data we had access to, right? It was what you could derive from the box scores in and, and the USA Today stats, et cetera. But now that we have batters faced by pitcher and plate appearances, you know, all, all, all lined up, then, you know, there's, there was no reason to stay in, uh, you know, it really is sort of a 1990s, early 2000s kind of mode. So, uh, you know, we are uh, happy that, you know, you in particular were one of the guys that did the research that pulled us forward on this. So, uh, you know, good job by you. And looking ahead, uh, will we see a move at Baseball HQ to switch from at-bats to plate appearances on the offensive side? Yeah, that's in flight already. There's, um, you know, that, that we did that in the forecaster as well. And that's, uh, there's still some work from the forecaster that's needed to be brought to the website. Now that we've done the percentage pitcher staffs, we'll bring forward plate appearances is an easy one, but you know, there's another round of changes to be made that involve, you know, some, you know, uh, 
QBAB, which quality of batted balls, which was in the forecast of this year and expected home runs and uh, expect barrel rate, expected whip. We've got a we've got an arsenal of metrics that we will probably we will definitely bring to the site. But I think given where we are in the calendar, we are very loath to change anything in March and draft season. So I think the rest of that stuff will probably be uh, after opening day deliverable will probably basically freeze changes until we get through draft season here. So it's not to have anybody download a stat file on the morning of their draft and suddenly find all this new data in it that they don't understand. We don't we, we need to have a, we need to have sort of a cutoff for changes. And I think we're about at that point. And last question, not for this year, but as you foresee and look down the road, you mentioned that one of the reasons for moving to the percentages basis was we got the data. We had access to this data, which allows us to be more accurate in presenting uh, our analysis. Now we're seeing that data is becoming more granular with the baseball savant stuff about pitch-by-pitch performances. You can actually look at the performance of individual pitches. Do you foresee a time when Baseball HQ moves in that direction and gets more granular as well? I mean, it's always possible. I was on another podcast the other night where we were sort of talking about this, and you're like, one of the things I like about you know, the one of the things I was saying is that having the forecaster and needing to summarize player performance in a box that size on an actual piece of paper rather than on a website where you have sort of unlimited space is it sort of keeps us honest about you know what is important or what metrics do we need to tell the story of what. of what the player did and what we project him to do. And, you know, QBAB is great that way because it took three different metrics, you know, exit velocity, launch angle, and launch angle variability. And, you know, it doesn't sit there with taking all the space to show that the launch angle went from 23% to 23 degrees to 23 and a half degrees to 24 degrees. And, you know, the the, the exit velocity didn't move by half a mile an hour a year. Eric's, the brilliance of what Eric did there was he just – boiled each of those down into letter grades, you know, sorting them into tiers, essentially. And the three letter grades, A, don't take up any space at all, and B, tell the story more clearly than, you know, having to stare at the decimals and figure out which way they moved. So, you know, I'm a big fan of that. And, you know, I I think the digestibility and usability of all of those StatCast metrics is still going to be the threshold for us using them as finding a way to represent them into our arsenal rather than just doing a flat data dump of them. Well, I, I use those stats a lot in my own re- research for Baseball HQ and just for my own edification. And what I've found is it's still, I think we're still a long way from being able to look at pitch by pitch data and apply them to fantasy baseball outcomes directly. And I think that that work is uh, ongoing. Alex Chamberlain and Alex Fast and guys like that are doing some really interesting work in that area uh, insofar as tying pitch outcomes to on the field outcomes, but I think the it's still nascent. I think there's still a lot of work to be done before we can say with any confidence this degree of of pitch movement on a curveball means this improvement in outcomes as far as your fantasy team is concerned. And until we get there, I think it's probably best reserved for facts and flukes type presentations for the facts and flukes spotlight deep dives and, and that kind of thing. 
Yeah, I think that's very much right. You know, I I give those guys all the credit in the world for the work they do and the way they dive into it. You know, I was telling the story the other day of my uh, my godson who's in college sent me a text last week about uh, she, about about the articles that were out on Seam Shifted Wake, and he was like, "Wow, this is the greatest thing ever! I want to dive into this." And I'm like, I had the opposite reaction, kind of similar to what you were saying. I'm like, not that it isn't cool. I would love to go down that rabbit hole, but I don't have time. I'm going to let the guys who are way smarter than me tell me what it means, and when they've got it fully sussed out, then we'll see if it tells us anything we don't already know about picture performance in our current metrics. And if there's something there, we'll find a way to integrate it or capture it. But like you said, when it's uh, in its nation, wild, nascent wild, wild west form, I'm going to let them thrash around for a while because it's cool to look at, but it's also, especially, especially at this time of year for me, it's a distraction too, you know? Yes, exactly right. And I've been a distraction to you for long enough here uh, today, <laughs> Ray. So I'll say thank you very much. Talk to you again in a week's time. You bet, PD. Thanks as always. Ray Murphy is a Baseball HQ columnist and co-general manager and covers the American League here at Baseball HQ Radio. Next up, it's our HQ Spotlight segment, where we talk some baseball with one of the staff analysts and writers at Baseball HQ. We'll have Jock Thompson, an old friend, coming to the plate in just a second. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In research, Eric Floramonte has that article you heard about with Ray explaining why Baseball HQ has moved its pitching skills metrics from per nine to percentages. In the alternative format strategy column, Matt Beagle, another former American League analyst at Baseball HQ Radio, looks at stratomatic hitters, while Bill McKnight looks at fringe keepers for 2021 in continuing score sheet leagues. And in facts and flukes, Brant Chesser looks at five national leaguers, including Kyle Hendricks and Austin Nola. And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. There's player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow, buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the market pulse, injury analysis in The Big Hurt, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, we have tools like the player projections updated every day, daily dashboards, pitcher matchup planners, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers during the season. And when you add it all up, expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues, that's why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our HQ Spotlight, where we introduce one of the staff analysts and writers at BaseballHQ.com. This week's guest really needs no introduction to longtime listeners of Baseball HQ Radio. It's Jock Thompson, who spent several years reporting on and analyzing the American League news for us here at the show. And it's my pleasure to say something I haven't said in a very long time. Jock Thompson, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It really has been a while. It has been a hell of a long time, hasn't it? It feels like years, and it's only been probably about a year and a half. Yeah, but one season and a half, I was going to say that you decided to hang up your microphone and your headphones and ride off into the sunset or into the sunrise, I guess we should say. Uh, before we get started talking about uh, Baseball HQ and your role and things like that, how many leagues are you going to be playing this year? I'm playing in three leagues. They're all dynasty as usual. Uh, two of them took off last year, so I didn't play it all. The other one I'm playing in is a an industry league, the 
Dynasty Gurus Expert League, where I partner up with Brent Hershey over at Baseball HQ. I know you've been watching the environment. Uh, lots of people have noticed that uh, starting pitching seems to be going earlier and earlier and more often in the early rounds than ever before. How have you responded to that in just thinking about how you would run a draft or in actually running a draft? Well, in, in terms of draft strategy, because I'm doing Dynasty, most of our leagues are supplemental drafts. We're, we're looking at um, the prospects that came into the league over the last two years um, and maybe cuts from other teams. We all have our teams, so I'm, I'm not as particularly well-versed in, in draft strategy, start over draft strategy, as, uh, as a lot of people are right now. And I'm, I'm a hitter over pitcher guy. I feel like I can find pitching any place. So that's kind of the, the general place from where I operate. It's funny you should say that, Jock, because uh, in the in the past few times I've talked about this here on Baseball HQ Radio with our various experts, it's like we're all waiting for some kind of zag to go b- back against the zig of taking all these starters early, and the idea is pretty much just what you said. Todd Zola has a f- basic philosophy, or has had over the years, that you should bully the hitting and manage the pitching. Grab as much hitting as you can as soon as you can, and then figure out your pitching You know, on the way wire during the year and the free agent pool during the year, you know, picking up those guys who are maybe not top tier, but the bottom of the second tier, the third tier down your Jose Barrios and guys like that. And it has worked for him. And I wonder if there's some kind of actual change that's taken place that means it isn't going to work anymore because it seems like it should. Yeah, I don't know about that because now, I mean, I, I, I don't know about the leagues that, that top Odd plays, and we've gone to a a, um, a saves plus holds league. We have we in in our in our home fantasy leagues, we we have more active pitchers than a normal, I think, fantasy league would. And because we're going to saves plus holds, and we're also going to innings pitched over wins, relievers have a much much bigger role to play in in our game, and I think they have a much bigger role to play in the major league game. Now, too, we don't know how pitching usage is going to turn out this year. Uh, I just saw a couple of days ago where the Giants signed Aaron Sanchez, who, when he was healthy, he, he could be pretty effective. And you wonder, OK, is he going to go three, four innings, you know, a crack a couple times a week? Is he going to be a starter? That's the kind of pitcher I think I can pick up if, if like you said, if Todd and Todd says bully the hitting, you know, first and look for your pitching, you know, where you can find it during the year. Yeah, well, I was talking about this with Ray Murphy just a few minutes ago in the American League Market Watch, your old stomping grounds, uh, as we both recall. And uh, what what Ray was saying about this, we were talking about six-man rotations and workload management and all of these kinds of things. And what's going to be critical is understanding how the teams are managing the pitchers within whatever system they elect to use. It's no good having a starting pitcher, in air quotes, if the starting pitcher is doomed to pitch four innings or two times through the order and can't get in line for a win, for example, or doesn't pile up enough innings to matter in an innings league rather than a wins league or where innings count in in some respect. So I think for the next what, three, five years maybe even, we're going to see a whole bunch of changes in the environment about how teams manage these situations because they might found, find out that it's more cost effective to have a lot of pitchers than to pay you know $30 million a year to Trevor Bauer. Because if Trevor Bauer gets hurt, just like any fantasy team, you're in real trouble if your $30 pitcher blows out an elbow. 
But if you've got ten three dollar uh, three million dollar pitchers or ten three dollar pitchers in fantasy terms, all of a sudden you've got a lot of options. Yeah, I'm exactly where you are right now. That's kind of how I'm looking at it. Now, don't get me wrong. On my dynasty teams, I don't have any of I don't have any what I think people call tier one starters, but I have a lot of tier two and tier three, you know, guys, and I'm going to supplement them with relief pitchers. That's kind of where I'm look, where I'm looking at going right now. Yeah, I think that's going to be something that a lot of people, as the draft season wears on, are going to start looking at. Because right now, if you look at a lot of the experts' leagues and a lot of the early NFBC leagues, it's like half pitchers in the first three rounds. And it mm-hmm. seems like, boy, if, if you're in the first three rounds and you can get three of the top hitters, you should be able to still cobble something together in the fourth, fifth, sixth rounds rather than giving up all of that offensive firepower in the early rounds. Now, the flip side of that, when you say that to people is, yeah, but you want all those Jacob deGrom strikeouts. You want all of those really great ratio innings. And basically, it's it's you give up one to get the other, and it doesn't matter which way you go. Yeah, on the other hand, if you can get, say, like a Lance Lynn and cobble him together with a, a Tyler Duffy of Minnesota, that's pretty good. It can work, right? But then they, yeah. they come back at you and they say, yes, but you, you you could also say, I'll take a Nelson Cruz and I'll buttress it with uh, Tommy LaStella. So you you take yeah. uh, Nelson Cruz and you match him with to- Tommy LaStella and you're basically doing the same thing as you're doing sure. with, uh, with the hitters, as you mentioned, on the other side of it. You left Baseball HQ Radio, as we said, about 18 months ago. Uh, what have you been doing since? You're still at BaseballHQ.com working hard. Yeah, um, I've... I've kept doing the playing time stuff. The the um, I've been doing the uh, uh, time tomorrow for the AOS since I think its inception. I think that was gosh, that was what 14, 14 years ago or something like that. Right. Um, but uh, um, I started out doing Market Watch back in two thousand and three or two thousand and four, uh, and. I've done keeper league stuff. Brad Coleman's kind of taken a little bit of that that over in his off-season building blocks column. Uh, I think I originated the first watch list columns. I still do some minor league work, uh, and I'm and I'm doing uh, playing time projections too. So they keep me busy still. And your major roles now are in the news area. Are you still the director of news? Yes. Yeah, I still do that. And you play a part in the coverage itself in playing time today. So let's talk about your role as a news gatherer and a team analyst. For which teams do you personally have responsibility in the in the baseball HQ structure? Well, for the playing time today, for the immediate news that comes out in the analysis and the the input into the projections, uh, I do all of the um, the Cali- the Southern California teams. I do two. Uh, I, I do the Angels and I do the Dodgers. I do the Padres. Uh, um, I do all of the NL uh, West teams except for one, Arizona. I think Phil Hertz does that one. And I do Kansas City and Colorado, which is a little strange, but it's, you know, it's it, it came my way and I picked it up. Um, those are the teams that I'm project uh, that I'm responsible for on the playing time today. And, and then on the 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 actual long term projections, the what happens if this if this goes wrong, if somebody gets an injury or or uh, who has organization? Who has a, an organization that's going to generate some some interesting players sometime after opening day? Um, I do all of the AL West for that. So yeah, lots to do still. You mentioned uh, that you are covering news for some of these teams, but you also mentioned that you have input into the projections. How does that work? 
Well, we it's interesting. Um, uh, we have grids. We have playing time grids um, that we maintain. Obviously, it's the playing time model that we do. And for the teams that I do, I've been doing them pretty much for so long. I'm always pretty intuitive as to where they are and their 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 organization and what they need. Uh, um, it's it's a it's a year over year thing. It 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 goes on during the off season. Um, and uh, basically, news comes out. We all have Twitter. We all have our phones. Uh, we have these great sites like uh, uh, Major League Trade Rumors, Fangraphs, RotoWire, transaction-oriented sites that tells us so-and-so got traded, so-and-so got injured, um, so-and-so said something about this player starting in the minors like Joe Adele. Um, and obviously, my projections jump off from those points, from those news points. And uh, um, I maintain those grids. Um, I try not to uh, get too much whiplash from some of the things that happen. Um, there's, you, you do the best you can at any point in time, but um, that's kind of how the sausage is made. And just so everybody understands, the the projections engine that Ray Murphy builds and maintains basically comes up with rates for all of these things. So some of the some of the uh, statistics, some of the categories are rates, uh, batting average, uh, on-base percentage, ERA and whip. But even when it comes to home runs, what he's projecting is the player's home runs per plate appearances or per at-bats. And what you guys are doing is you're putting in the at-bats. You're projecting the playing time, and then the system multiplies your assessment of playing time times the home run rate to come up with an actual numerical home run result in the projection. Is that right? That's correct. And we have a private forum um, whereby all of the playing time people, both playing time tomorrow and playing time today, comment on the analysis. We kind of go back and forth with each other on uh, Franchi Cordero's expected um, plate appearances. That's a big leap of faith right now. And, uh, uh, you know, that sort of commentary goes back and forth depending on differences of opinion as far as that goes. And I suppose in addition to differences of opinion, some of those guys live in some of those cities and, and are not necessarily just because you live in Cleveland means you have the Cleveland club because somebody else may already have it and you might be responsible for Philadelphia or Cincinnati or something. And there's an opportunity to to share those ideas because you're in the market. I, I mean, I don't cover... Uh, any of the teams, but I get a lot of Toronto news. So if I had a Toronto tidbit to share, that would be a kind of a venue for it. Absolutely. That's the benefit of having those forums because anybody can go in there and we're all baseball fans and we're all writers and we're all kind of inclined to, if we see a, a playing time projection that we think um, might be a little bit off one way or another, we'll, we'll, we'll go in there and, and tell the, the, the person responsible why. You also mentioned something interesting, Jock, about whiplash, because I was wondering about the challenge in covering and analyzing, especially at this stage of the preseason, is the amount of noise that you have to separate from the amount of news. Uh, every time a manager opens his mouth, the temptation is to do what they did with uh, GameStop stock. You know, everybody's jumping on and piling in, and next thing you know, it's $400 a share. But then somebody says, well, wait a second, it's still a failing company. <laughs> it's worth $2 a share. And then it zooms back down, and then something else it zooms back up. How do you separate the news in what you hear from all your sources from the noise? You know, it's hard. I, I try to pay attention to everything, actually, aside from the best shape of his career stories. Uh, even the spring training games and what people decide, uh, what people might consider to be noise. I, I just read, for example, today that uh, Otani's uh, top radar reading was 90 miles an hour following a 20 
pitch bullpen session. Uh, I don't know what to think of that. I mean, it's pretty early. I don't know what the objective of the session was. Some people think some, I saw some posts on Twitter that said that's immediately a bad sign. You should stick to hitting. I have no clue what to make of it, but I do pay attention to, attention to it because if he's still only throwing 90 at, uh, at the beginning of the season, then you got to worry a little bit. At this early stage, because of the uh, all the uncertainties in all the different rosters, many of Baseball HQ's team roster projections in our depth charts have allocated way more than 100% of the playing time in various positions. Why is that the model, and when do you guys want to have it all in balance where it all adds up to 100%? Well, particularly at this point in time, we're, 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 we're trying to do a best-case scenario for individual players uh, in the current roster. And one reason that we're over 100% is it's pretty po- impossible to still to project trades, injuries, and even roles, new signings. Just, just for example, Trevor Rosenthal just signed this morning with Oakland, pretty much wiping out all of the fractional save projections we had for what looked to me like a, a pretty generally capable Oakland pen before Rosenthal. Um, and, and if he should come down with an injury, we, we still want to leave five, 10% saves for the best candidates there as a helpful reminder to our subs as to, to who's second in line behind Rosenthal. So it is a zero sum game of sorts, and it's going to get more zero sum as we get uh, down to opening day. We will, we will bring everything in line to 100%. Uh, but uh, right now we're looking at best case scenarios and, uh, and with what information we have. I did want to ask you about a couple of news analysis items you covered in Playing Time today. First, you mentioned you cover the Dodgers, and I've asked other guests on Baseball HQ Radio this, but what's your analysis of Trevor Bauer signing in Los Angeles as far as his value as a fantasy pitcher? The Dodgers have made my life harder, my playing time today and tomorrow life harder than any club I've ever covered because they're so deep. Um, they're so unpredictable. They they spend so much time adjusting and ILing and managing not just their rotation, but their starters. And they're, they're, it's a very versatile club. But obviously, Bauer makes them richer. Um, um, it, it, it lets them churn that pitching staff even more. It, it doesn't help like Tony Gonsal or Dustin May or, or maybe even Julio Arias, who probably thinks he should own a rotation spot with no questions asked after his postseason performance. But now you, you throw somebody in there like Bauer who, who could, you know, who's, who's healthy and uh, has a history of going on short rest. Uh, uh, Julio Arias might be a, a victim of his own success and versatility last postseason. You mean they might push him into the bullpen or, or some kind of swing role? Or yeah, just a, yeah, just a, a swingman role. He, he'll start sometimes, go long other times. I mean, that's what he did in the in the in the in the uh, postseason, and he did all of it real well. So why why knock success? Dexter Fowler signed with the uh, Angels. Is this as bad a news for Joe Adele as I think it is? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Adele was clearly overmatched. I thought he was overmatched when they first called him. I shouldn't say overmatched. He was rushed. Uh, that's a that's a better term. He didn't have any high minors experience to speak of. Um, Fowler is a typical angel signing. He's kind of a stopgap for both Adele and Marsh. Uh, if those two really come on in the first half in uh, wherever they're playing in, in AAA, I assume it's Salt Lake City, um, Fowler's not going to stand in their way. I, I'm not thrilled with Fowler signing fantasy-wise. It wasn't awful given the money. Um, but uh, his best-case fantasy scenario was a 
mostly platoon right fielder who might be able to take advantage of the short right field porch and, and give some good on base percentage. I'm not convinced that Fowler will be there on the club for most of the second half. Jake McGee signed with the Giants. He's a really good pitcher, but he's a left-hander and uh, historically hasn't had a lot of saves. The question now, obviously, is whether he has a chance to get any saves in that San Francisco bullpen. What's your take on that? Well, today, yeah, I think he does. I mean, if you look at what McGee did last year and his his peripherals and, and what San Francisco has in its pen, absolutely. Uh, the problem, of course, is that, that it was such a, a, a recency outlier uh, with regression. Who knows? But gun to my head today, I'd pick McGee as the closer in San Francisco. You ask me in, a, in another month, I might have a different answer. So it's it's yes, but with not a high degree of confidence. You mentioned, Jock, you're also the analyst who covers the entire American League West in playing time tomorrow. What are those columns about? How does that work? Well, what we try to do is we try to look at the rosters and uh, at, at any particular point in time and look at the organizations and basically project white, what might happen and what the club is trying to do. Um, um, I just published my last piece last night uh, for the AOS and I featured the Angels rotation. Uh, uh, clearly, they're going to throw a whole bunch of experienced but injury-susceptible vets and and mercurial performance-wise vets into the mix and see what happens. Uh, um, they have some backup names, uh, um, uh, Barria and uh, Patrick Sandoval, um, that will could be in the rotation by the end of opening day if, if, if the Angels have a typical injured list run. Um, but we're trying to project we're trying to show fantasy owners what they can expect from a certain club in a certain area at any given time. One of the teams that you covered in this week's uh, playing time tomorrow about the American League West was Seattle. And uh, here you covered the topic that Ray and I talked about earlier as well. And I'm real curious about your take at the six man rotation in Seattle, especially now that they've added uh, James Paxton to the mix. Uh, what do you think is going on with the Mariners as far as their possible extended rotation? Well, I think I think a lot of clubs are talking six-man rotation because they want to get everybody into the action. They want to, they want to preserve these arms. They nobody can afford to have pitching injuries other than maybe the Dodgers, of course. And then we get into spring training and the injuries happen and and things happen and and I don't know of too many clubs where a six man rotation has worked all year long. You get, you're going to have bullpen games. You're, they're going to be bringing guys up from the minors who you wouldn't want on your fantasy rosters just to, just to give the rest of the starting staff a break. Um, I think Seattle is going to be one of those teams. I'm not a fan of, I'm not a fan of their rotation as it sits right now. They got a few guys with upside um, that, that, that could be interesting, but the last, um, the last names in, uh, um, in, in, uh, that rotation um, signings like uh, uh, who are we talking about here? Um, you've got uh, um, Chris Flexen, who was just signed out of Korea. He had a pretty good year in Korea last year, but if you look at his major league track record, it's not it's not uh, it's not particularly scintillating. He's got pretty soft stuff. Um, Justin Dunn probably needs more work. Nick Margovicius is is pretty standard that. Uh, uh, minor league uh, starting starting upside. 
Um, these are the three guys that round would that would round up their fifth and sixth starting spots. So how how feasible is it really going to be? I don't know. I mean, I think it's it's something they're going to take day by day. And I think this gets back to what we were talking about earlier, which is maybe when they say six man rotation, as Ray suggested, also maybe what they mean is three starters and then a bunch of mix and match starter slash bulk guy opener slash bulk guy type things, one time through the order, piggyback starting, taking turns being the first guy and the second guy, that kind of stuff. And then you also mentioned a guy, a young guy named Logan Gilbert, and who might play a role. Yeah, and see, that's the interesting thing here, and that's where you, you can't ignore the noise. Now, he got some very good press from the alternate site last year, and this is a guy with uh, – this is a prospect who has a pedigree. He has a, he has a broad repertoire. He's got pitchability, and he's got a mid-rotation floor. And if, and if his stuff really did uptick at the, uh, at the alternate site last year, and if you're looking at, at a lot of direct at the end of the Seattle rotation – how is he not going to be in that rotation sometime in May or June? I, I don't see it. I, I think he's going to play a role this year. Who knows what he'll do? But again, what we're looking at is opportunity. And, and you get a guy with skills and you give them opportunity, anything can happen. You also pointed to some interesting possibilities as far as the Texas catching situation goes. What's the behind the dish dish? Well, the, the thing in Texas is, first off, it's not a, it's not an organization that has a lot of uh, major league ready talent uh, to uh, to bring to the to the majors. It's it's it hasn't been successful there recently, and and catching's one of those areas where at least there's some glimmers. Uh, um, they've got a, a defense first guy named Jose Trevena, who's going to be the who, who projects to be anyway the starting catcher. He's never wowed with the bat. But he's he's made good contact and he made good hard contact last year in about uh, I think it was uh, 76 at bats. Um, this is a guy that can't be dismissed outright. He's a good defensive catcher like most are now. Um, and as part of the Andrus trade, they got a guy named Jonah Heim who's pretty similar. His his plate skills and batting average have ticked up in the high minors. So it, it, these guys aren't like must own in a, in a lot of uh, fantasy leagues, but in deeper two catcher leagues. They're watchable. And then you you got guys like Sam Huff, who hit uh, – he's one of their better prospects. He hit three home runs and 30 at-bats last year uh, coming up. He only has high A experience right now, and he's going to strike out a lot. This is a guy who, if, if he can catch in the majors, um, probably isn't going to hit more than 230, 240. But if he can hit 25 home runs, he's a starter, and he's a, he's going to be a fantasy force. Um He's probably going to now begin uh, somewhere in uh, in Double A, maybe Triple A, with the with the uh, acquisition of Jonah Heim. But uh, it's it's an interesting situation in Texas. It's not earth shattering fantasy wise, but at least uh, it catches your attention. Well, Jock, this has been a fun trip down memory lane. Uh, remind all of our listeners when your work appears at baseballhq.com, and where else can listeners keep track of Jock Thompson? I am. I will publish something pretty much every day except for Tuesday at Baseball HQ in the Playing Time Today space. I do my Playing Time tomorrow, tomorrow column that's out every Thursday morning. And I'm on Twitter occasionally talking about baseball, among other things, depending on what kind of a strong stomach you have on Twitter. Um, so that's kind of where I am these days. And what's your Twitter handle? Twitter handle is uh, at jock at HQ. 
Fantastic. Jock Thompson, it's, uh, as I said, a trip down memory lane. It was so much fun to see you again and to talk to you again. Hopefully we'll talk to you during the season as well. And maybe we'll see you in Arizona. Okay, Peter, we'll do that. Thanks. Jock Thompson is an analyst and news director at BaseballHQ.com. And hey, before we roll ahead, I wanted to let you know about our next show. It's another Two Tout Tuesday edition. We open with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports, and we'll follow up with Joe Sheehan, a longtime guest on the show from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. That's coming up Tuesday here on Baseball HQ Radio. Coming up next right now... We have our regular HQ commentaries, the Minor League Minute, Frequent Flyer, and Extra Innings, all next on Baseball HQ Radio. Gibson swings and a fly ball to deep right field. This is going to be a home run. Unbelievable. A home run for Gibson. And the Dodgers have won the game 5-4. to four. I don't believe what I just saw. I don't believe what I just saw. Is this really happening, Bill? It is happening, and they've got to help him home. The third-place coach, uh, Joe Malfitano, had to give him a little push, and all the Dodgers are around home plate. I don't believe what I just saw. One of the most remarkable finishes to any World Series game. A one-handed home run by Kurt Gibson, and the Dodgers have won it 5-4. to four. I am stunned, Bill. I have seen a lot of dramatic finishes in a lot of sports, but this one might top almost every other one. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular commentaries. The frequent flyer and my extra innings comment are coming right up. And leading us off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at pitchers Sixto Sanchez and Mackenzie Gore is Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. With pitchers and catchers reporting to camp this week, we turn our attention to two of the top pitching prospects in the National League, Mackenzie Gore and Sixto Sanchez. While both Gore and Sanchez landed in the top 15 of the HQ 100, their potential impact in 2021 could be drastically different. Sanchez heads into the 2021 season as a virtual lock to make the Marlins starting rotation and should start the season as the club's number two or number three starter. The 22-year-old Sanchez made his MLB debut last year, going 3-2 with a 3.46 ERA and seven impressive starts. Sanchez overpowers hitters with a double-plus four-seam fastball that sits at 96-98, topping out at 101. He also has a two-seamer with plus sinking action, a cutter, a curveball, and a plus changeup. At 6 feet 235, Sanchez has a short, stocky frame with a quick arm action and is able to consistently repeat his mechanics with above-average command. Sanchez walked just 1.7 batters per nine in the minors and has been a consistent strike thrower. The only downside with Sanchez is that he doesn't strike out as many as you would think, given his plus stuff. In five minor league seasons, Sanchez punched out just 7.9 per nine, preferring instead to induce weak contact. Mackenzie Gore has been a top prospect since the Padres made him the third overall pick in the 2017 draft. Since turning pro, Gore is 11-8 with a 2.56 ERA over 183 innings. The 21-year-old Gore attacks hitters with a four-pitch mix highlighted by a mid-90s fastball, a slider, and a changeup that are all considered plus offerings. Unlike Sanchez, Gore gets plenty of swing and miss and owns a career 11.9 strikeouts per nine. He repeats his mechanics well with some nice deception from the left-handed side, but does occasionally lose control of the strike zone. 
Gore spent all of the 2020 season at the Padres' alternate training site and made enough progress that many anticipated he would get a shot at making the Padres' starting rotation this spring. That has all been put on hold when the Padres added Yu Darvish, Blake Snell, and Joe Musgrove over the winter. As a result, Gore will likely start the season at AAA El Paso. Padres GM A.J. Preller has consistently indicated that he sees Gore as a starter and wants him to remain in that role until needed or until he forces the issue. Heading into 2021, Sanchez has the clearer path to consistent playing time, but pitching prospects, even those as talented as Sixto Sanchez and Mackenzie Gore, are inherently risky propositions, and savvy fantasy leaguers should bid cautiously. Still, for those willing to assume some risk, and those in long-term keeper formats, Mackenzie Gore and Sixto Sanchez have tremendous upside and should be fun to watch this summer. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Baseball HQ Minor League's analyst Rob Gordon is the member of the Baseball HQ scouting team and has his Minor League Minute here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. And speaking of scouting, this week at BaseballHQ.com, Chris Lee has a look at 2021 NCAA names to know. Now it's time for the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth a spot on your roster. And here with a look at Mets left-handed starting pitcher Thomas Shapucky is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. He's a lefty whose stuff screams strikeout machine, according to BaseballHQ.com. Well, actually, that was about four years ago, back to 2017 to be exact. But perhaps it still applies, and it also highlights some of the depth and excellent miners' coverage awaiting you at BaseballHQ.com. Thus, going back, way back, back to 2017, under Fantasy Impact in his 2017 organization report for the New York Mets on BaseballHQ.com, Baseball HQ's Chris Blessing said that Thomas Zapucky's stuff screams strikeout machine. Whether starting or in relief, Thomas Zapucky should offer owners significant production at maturity. However, that significant production has been effectively delayed largely due to injury. In fact, the now 24-year-old New York Mets hurler, Thomas Zapucky, missed the entire 2018 season, befitting his profile in the 2021 Minor League Baseball Analyst, which reads, quote-unquote, Funky left-handed pitcher returned after missing 20 months recovering from Tommy John surgery. Hence Thomas Zapucky's description in Baseball HQ's 2021 Minor League Baseball Analyst shows why Thomas Zapucky, like all of our frequent flyers, shouldn't be concerned to be a long shot, perhaps a funky left-handed pitching long shot, who may be worth the flyer if he is still available late in your draft. Yet despite the injury risk, Mets lefty Thomas Zapucky traversed three levels of the minors in 2019, finishing with a 263 ERA in 18 starts while striking out 72 in only 61 innings pitched. That translates to a dominance rate of 10.6 strikeouts per nine, where we at BaseballHQ.com recommend targeting and drafting pitchers with a dominance rate of nine strikeouts per nine or higher. So he passes that strikeout machine test. Plus, Mets lefty Thomas Zapucky locked in a 27% strikeout rate in the minors in 2019, or roughly three times his nine strikeouts per nine rate that year. Again, effectively passing that strikeout machine test too. 
Nevertheless, despite flashing a 97-mile-per-hour fastball as a lefty and a power curve, 24-year-old Mets lefty Thomas Zapucky has yet to make his Major League debut. However, Thomas Zapucky was reportedly still pitching and still developing at the New York Mets alternate site in 2020. Even so, again quoting Baseball HQ's Chris Blessing back in 2017, Thomas Zapucky's stuff screams strikeout machine. Whether starting or in relief, Thomas Zapucky should offer owners significant production at maturity. So go ahead and quote Chris Blessing back in 2017 by screaming out, Strikeout Machine! What drafting New York Mets Southpaw starter, Thomas Zapucky, as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my comment on baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I'd like to talk about an objective opinion about Fernando Tatis's new deal. The day after Fernando Tatis Jr. signed his new $340 million contract to stay in San Diego for up to 14 years, some guy on Twitter said, and I quote, Fernando Tatis Jr. playing the next 14 years in the country's number 27 media market on the West Coast is an objectively bad thing for baseball. This guy is apparently some kind of content producer at ESPN, and maybe he hopes that his hot take will earn him a promotion. If so, first of all, he'd better hope that managers at ESPN don't know what objectively actually means, because objectively actually means based on factual evidence. By that standard, this hot take, like most of them in the sports media business, is anything but objective. It's just this guy's opinion. It's entirely subjective. He could argue that the game's brightest new star would be of somewhat more use in Major League Baseball's marketing if he were playing for a big market team on the East Coast, where more of the TV audience is found. But even that would only be a subjective argument that the deal is bad for baseball marketing, and not for baseball, period. It wasn't bad for baseball that Henry Aaron and Robin Yount played in Milwaukee. It wasn't bad for baseball that Ichiro and Ken Griffey Jr. played in Seattle. It wasn't bad for baseball that Vladimir Guerrero and Larry Walker played in Montreal, and that both of them went on to smaller market teams after that. It wasn't bad for baseball that Brooks Robinson and Frank Robinson and Jim Palmer and Mike Cuellar and a host of teammates played in Baltimore for one of the greatest teams in history. And speaking of Charm City, I thought it was pretty darn good for baseball that Cal Ripken played his whole career there. It wasn't bad for baseball that Johnny Bench played for Cincinnati. It wasn't bad for baseball when Roberto Clemente and Willie Stargell played in Pittsburgh. It wasn't bad for baseball that Rod Carew, Harmon, Killebrew, and Kirby Puckett all played in Minnesota. And it sure wasn't bad for baseball that George Brett and Bo Jackson played in Kansas City. We can even look past baseball. It's not bad for basketball that Giannis Antetokounmpo has signed to play most or all of his NBA career in Milwaukee, nor that Tim Duncan played his entire career in San Antonio. It wasn't bad for hockey that Wayne Gretzky played most of his career in Edmonton, which isn't even the biggest market in Alberta nor that Sidney Crosby has played his entire career in Pittsburgh. It isn't bad for football that Aaron Rodgers played in Green Bay, nor that Archie Manning suffered through an entire career playing for New Orleans, 
or that Ronnie Lancaster, my hero, played his whole magnificent career in Regina, Saskatchewan, population 200,000, where he kept a whole generation of fans glued to the fortunes of the Rough Riders, and they stayed glued long after he had retired from playing. Personally, my own subjective opinion is that the signing of Fernando Tatis is great for baseball. It's great for any sport when a fantastic young talent rises up, no matter where, and it's especially great when that young player commits longer term to that same small market. It's my subjective opinion that great players in smaller cities are more of a help than when they're sharing the spotlight with all the other big stars in New York or Boston or wherever some guy from ESPN thinks is good for baseball. Hey, Mr. ESPN content producer, maybe your objective assertion isn't objective at all. Maybe it's colored by the fact that you work for a company that seems to think only New York and Los Angeles teams are worth showing. And when that approach leads to declining interest everywhere else, then guys like you use that fact to justify your objective opinion that only the big markets matter. They don't. It would be good for baseball if more young stars signed on in more small markets. In the meantime, it would also help if content producers at ESPN didn't come up with opinions they call objective but are anything but. And, by the way, are just dumb. That's my take, anyway. Objectively speaking, I'm Patrick Davitt. I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February the 19th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number six of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy. Our Minor League Minute commentator was Baseball HQ Minor Leagues Analyst Rob Gordon. And our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I also want to thank our HQ Spotlight guest, Jock Thompson, columnist and director at BaseballHQ.com. Jock's a great guy and a former American League news analyst here at Baseball HQ Radio, and I remember those days very fondly indeed. I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go wherever you catch your podcasts. Leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again on Tuesday with another Two Tout Tuesday edition featuring Scott Pianowski and Joe Sheehan on deck. <coughs> Scott Pianowski and Joe Sheehan on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. 
The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.